And so on this day, we try to market the church to make it seeker sensitive and purpose driven. But I fear its purposes are not God's purposes. And we're offering what Dietrich Bonhoeffer offered called cheap grace. We offer forgiveness without repentance, compassion without integrity, tolerance without discipline, but not Christ. He knew that there was a raging thirst in this woman's soul, but it could never be quenched until her conscience was first pricked. And so understanding her need to have her conscience pricked so that her heart can be satisfied, he deals with her sin head on. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Woman at the Well. How are we to worship God? The Bible says in spirit and in truth, but without salvation, neither of these are possible. As we continue our study of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman that he possesses water for which she shall never thirst again. He is, of course, speaking of salvation. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And this woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still doesn't get it. Kind of like Nicodemus, she's thinking purely on a natural plane. She is like him, is spiritually blind. So Jesus is going to perform some spiritual surgery. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now to the careless reader, it seems like rather an abrupt change of subject for Jesus to immediately say, go call your husband. But he wants to quench this woman's thirst. But he knows that before he can quench her thirst, he has to first disturb her conscience. He has to get her lost before he can really get her saved. And he knew at this point in the conversation, she did not grasp the nature of living water that he's promising. Now, he's making a promise to her for living water. But for her to really want it, she's going to have to be thirsty. But you're going to have to be thirsty. And to be thirsty, you're going to have to see that this is a spiritual thing he's talking about. And what is keeping her from having her quenched thirst is a spiritual issue, namely sin. She wants living water, but she doesn't want it for the right reason. She wants it for the wrong reason. She wants what Jesus has for the same reason a lot of people today want what Jesus offers. Make them feel good. Bless me, Jesus. Give me good health, Jesus. Make me rich, Jesus. Take care of all my problems, Jesus. But they don't really want to face their sin. And that's her problem. So Jesus is going to peel back the veneer and open her up wide open. Go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. This woman had been in tandem adultery, married five times. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. You didn't even bother to get married this time. You're just living with the man. Oh, that dirty, diabolical devil. How he will tempt you and try to offer you things that this world will say will satisfy you, but he will only deceive you. Jesus said he is a liar and the father of lies, and every time he speaks, he speaks a lie. It's the message of this culture, friend. You don't meet as many non-Christians who are moral as you did 25 years ago. 
Most non-Christians today live immoral lives like this woman. I just spoke to a woman recently. She said, I had been trying to find meaning to life. I went from bar to bar, finding relationship after relationship, but it's only left me hurt and confused. That's the way the devil works. He is a wicked deceiver. Proverbs says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be filled with gravel. So the Lord has to show this woman her need. If, he is, if she is going to come to him for salvation, he has got to deal with her sin. And by the way, you can't hide anything from God. He knows absolutely everything about you and about me. He knows that this woman has lived a lifestyle of adultery. That's why she's here at noontime. That's why she comes all alone. She doesn't want to deal with the wagging tongues of the gossips of the town and their contemptuous stares. She comes at a time when no one would come. The women don't want to speak to her. Why? Because she's too popular with the men. She'd be a candidate today for an Academy Award. The Lord wants to make her a candidate for salvation. I want to tell you, if there was ever a story in the Bible that God can save anyone, it's this message. This woman who has lived a dirty, immoral life. Christ loves her, and he wants to save her. Now, I doubt the average evangelical would react to this woman in the same way Jesus Christ did. Oh, people today all speak about compassion. In the name of compassion, though, we overlook sin and we so often condone it. We, we call it by other terms, something nicer, something politer, something more palatable. And so today, standards are lax in churches. You can join a church, be a member of a church, living with someone who's not your husband. You can live immorally and be in good fellowship in most churches. And in those Bible-believing churches that believe that immorality is wrong, very few will hold their members accountable with church discipline when they fall into sin. And so if you're so bold to call sin, sin, oh, you're called judgmental, divisive, uncaring, lacking gentleness. And so on this day, we try to market the church to make it seeker-sensitive and purpose-driven. But I fear its purposes are not God's purposes, and we are offering what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. We offer forgiveness without repentance, compassion without integrity, tolerance without discipline, but not Christ. He knew that there was a raging thirst in this woman's soul, but it could never be quenched until her conscience was first pricked. And so understanding her need to have her conscience pricked so that her heart can be satisfied, he deals with her sin head on. Now look at her reaction here in verse 19. It's rather interesting. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. He just read her soul. She knows that in some way he must be inspired by God. And so like most people who are under the conviction of sin, what does she do? She changes the subject. It's rather uncomfortable to have your sin pointed at. So what does she do? Well, she turns it into a religious theological discussion that takes the focus off of her. She said, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, that is, Yerimon Gerizim. And you people, you Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, this was a pretty critical theological question and debate of the day between Jews and Samaritans. 
Because all knew in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5 that God had commanded that the place that they were to worship was the place that he desired his name to dwell. So the question was, where was that place? Well, for a Jew, it was Jerusalem because God had revealed it very pointedly later on to King David. Jerusalem is the apple of my eye. That's where you'll build the temple. But you see, a Samaritan only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And God hadn't revealed specifically at that point. And so when they thought about, well, we're not welcomed in Jerusalem, so where do we worship? Where is the place that God would have his name to dwell? And they chose Mount Gerizim, because that was the place that Abraham first built an altar and worshipped there in Shechem, that place that overlooked Mount Gerizim. And it was on Mount Gerizim that before the people went into the land of promise, they shouted the blessings and the curses of the covenant that God gave in the book of Deuteronomy. So they built their temple there. And after John Hyacarinus destroyed it, they continued to worship there. So to divert the attention off herself, she wants to get in this theological discussion. Should we worship in the place where the Samaritans worship? Or should we worship in the place where you Jews worship there in Mount Moriah? Have you ever happened, had this happen to you when you're witnessing to someone? They change the subject? Well, sure, it happens all the time. What's she doing? She's taking the focus off of her. Oh, do you really believe in a hell, Pastor? Hey, if God is so good, why is there so much suffering and hurt in the world today? They changed the subject. It's very easy to talk about religion and theology without having to face your own sin. The brother of a very famous preacher once said, I like a sermon where one man is the preacher and one man is the congregation so that when the preacher says, thou art the man, there is no mistaking who he's talking about. Well, there's one preacher here and one congregant and there's no mistake whom he is speaking about, and she is uncomfortable. She gets into an issue of denominations. Hey, which denomination is right? That ever happened to you? Of course, most of the time, people who raise these questions, hey, where did Cain get his wife? Hmm. They don't really care where Cain got his wife. They want to know uh, the real problem is not Cain's wife, but where they got their wife from. Often another person's wife. Oh, they'll argue theology with you. They'll offer denominational issues. Who's right? Those who baptize by immersion or those who sprinkle? Tell me, Pastor, who's right? They get into theology. Listen, no denomination can save you, not a Baptist, Episcopalian, Catholic, or anyone else. Only Christ can save you. Maybe you heard the story of the man who was trying to get a woman to join his Baptist church. She said, I don't want to be a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I've told you that over and over and over again. He says, well... Why are you a Methodist? What difference does that really make to you? She said, I'm a Methodist because my grandfather was a Methodist and my father was a Methodist and my husband was a Methodist and that's why I'm a Methodist. He said, well, that doesn't make any sense. What if your grandfather were a fool? What if your father were a fool? What if your husband is a fool? What would that make you? Well, I guess I'd be a Baptist then. <laughs> Listen, friend, you can't get into heaven by any denomination. Please notice the response here of Christ in verse 21. Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He's telling her that there is little to be gained by this prolonged debate over the place of God to worship. He brings it back to what's really important, something to learn there in evangelism. Because he wants her to know that ultimately both by 
places are about to be bypassed. Notice, you worship that which you do not know. We Jews, that is, worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So he does answer her question. He says, you Samaritans are worshiping in ignorance. We Jews are not. Why? Salvation is from the Jew. And the Samaritan knew that the Jews were the recipients of God's revelation. They had the truth. And really, it's only faith in God that will accept what Christ said, that salvation is through the Jew. Jew Jews were the, 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 the instruments that God used to bring salvation to the world. Jesus came as a Jew. He is a Jew. Salvation is from the Jew. But lest you get stuck on this place of worship, he says to her, verse 23, an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You see what he's doing and saying? He's saying that whether it's this mountain or that mountain is meaningless. You have to worship God in spirit and in truth because the hour has come, the hour has been inaugurated, and it is coming when there is a new deal. We call it the new covenant, the New Testament that was initiated through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's when the new covenant began, when he laid down his life there on Golgotha, making it possible for something that no Old Testament saint could ever know like we know. That's why, while John the Baptist was the greatest ever born of men, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because we can have a living, pulsating relationship with God when he takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. It's called being born again. Now, why does God want us to worship him? The Bible says he seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not because some God is some kind of celestial egotist that then he needs to tell, for people to tell him how great he is. God doesn't need your worship you don't add anything to God when you worship God. God is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and truth because God is seeking people to be saved and you can only worship God properly when you've been born from above, when you've had a spiritual birth. That happens, and when it happens, then, and only then, can you worship Him in spirit and truth, and it doesn't matter if it's in Jerusalem or Gerizim or in Buford, South Carolina. See, the Lord is telling this woman that the road she wants to go down, and in one sense, is totally irrelevant. What is more important is how you worship God. You need to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You can't worship God this morning in spirit until you've been born from above. Have you been born again? You say, I don't even know what it is. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you. Let me sit down with you and explain to you how to be born again. But until you are born again, you cannot worship God in spirit. But when you are born again, God the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. And when you are filled with the Spirit, you can worship God in spirit. But you don't worship in a vacuum. You worship in spirit and in truth. And the truth of God is found in the Word of God. So you have people today who only want to worship in spirit. 
And that's the emphasis. Oh, be filled with the Spirit, worship in Spirit, but they don't know the truth of the Bible. And so what do you have? You have fanaticism. You have emotionalism. On the other end of the spectrum, you have those who just worship in truth, but they are not Spirit-filled Christians. And so what do you have? Dead formalism, legalism. Neither is right. The Father seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth and understand worship is not limited to what we do here on Sunday morning. This is only a small fraction of the whole formula. The Bible teaches that worship is all that you are and all that you do. And so Paul will say, present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. Now look at her response. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Even the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah because even their first five books taught that Messiah would indeed come. Right after Adam and sinned, God makes a promise of a Savior and it becomes the theme of the first five books. She says, I know Messiah is coming. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He is telling her, I am the one you've been looking for. This woman is brought face to face with the Savior. And some of you this morning, even as I speak, you're being brought face to face with the Savior. And you must ask yourself, what will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? God's seeking you. He's been convicting you. But how will you respond? Well, it says at verse 27, and at this point his disciples came And they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? They don't ask her, what are you seeking? Or why are you, Jesus, speaking with her? They're amazed, though, that the Lord would speak with a woman. Because in that day, a man never spoke with a woman except in private, never in public. And beyond that, the rabbis of the day taught it was an absolute waste of time to teach women the Torah, the law, because they were women. They were prejudiced. Uh, deeply prejudiced against. But the Lord breaches all of the social convictions of his day. He's totally free from discrimination, from ethnic prejudice, from moral prejudiceness of any kind. Here is one who loves people, who takes people for the way he made them. He loved all people, shrank from absolutely no one. And so he was not held hostage to the prejudices of his day. Now, it's rather interesting if you think about it, because the disciples go into town to fetch food. Jesus is at a well waiting for a woman. And on the way, they would have passed this dear woman. And I wonder if they even greeted her, if they looked at her. And you know what it must have been like for these Jewish men to go into this town and buy Samaritan food? Oh, the Lord is dealing with these guys, as we'll see here. So the woman, verse 28 left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now, why did she leave the water pot there? Well, she's so excited, she just forgets all about it. And she goes, the text says to the men, don't make a big point that she went to the man versus the woman. You could translate it as most translations say the people. It's anthropos, it's generic, and the context bears that out. The people of the village to whom she had been trying to avoid their presence, now she goes and she speaks with them. Come see a man who told me everything about myself. Well, what does she mean when she says, he told me all things that I have done? She can say that without any exaggeration. Why? Because she knows 
that if he knows as much about her as he does, then he knows everything about her. They went out, the text says, of the city and were coming to him. Obviously, her excitement was convincing. So the townspeople want to go and see for themselves. That brings us to the last point, to the disciples that Christ must teach. Notice now verse 31 as we conclude. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. The disciples are urging him to eat some of the food that they had just bought in the town. He's no doubt hungry, and he's probably, as best I can tell, still thirsty because as far as I can show, she never gave him the drink he asked for. And so thinking about this conversation that he had just had and their shock that he would speak with a Samaritan woman, he decides to use the circumstances to teach the disciples something about his own priorities and the priorities they ought to have. Verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? They're thinking of literal food as much as this Samaritan woman is thinking of literal water. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The reason he went through Samaria to begin with is because it was the father's will for his life. And he found tremendous nourishment of soul in doing the father's will. I want to tell you, God's will never contradicts God's word. And if you're in the will of God, you'll be nourished by it. It will build you up. It will build others up. It will not tear you down or others down if you're in the center of God's will. Have you ever been so consumed with the will of God that you even forgot to eat? Oh, the Lord Jesus. He's absolutely nourished and delighted with doing the Father's will. So he expands here on the image from that of food to that of a harvest from which the food comes. Look at verse 35. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white. For a harvest. Now, what did he mean? Yet four months and then comes the harvest. Well, some take it that the fields had just been planted in mid-April, had been planted, and in mid-April the harvest would be ready. That would mean that the fields were planted four months before in mid-December, and the harvest is ready. Well, uh, that the harvest will be ready in four months. Okay, so follow me now. I'm now. <laughs> Mist in the pulpit, fog in the pew, you know how that works. <laughs> Some think that it's mid-December and that in four months the harvest will be ready. April. Now, that can't be. You follow the chronology of John's gospel carefully. What happened? They just finished Passover. When does Passover happen? It goes according to the lunar schedule. It's always in March or April when our Easter is. Jesus died on Good Friday on Passover. No, this is a proverbial statement of sorts. In fact, in the original, if you read it, it has a rhyme to it. And so typically it was an expression. Four months and then cometh the harvest. What's he trying to say? He is trying to teach them a very important truth about the spiritual realm. People would say, ah, hey, the crop's in, relax. Four months until the harvest comes. Jesus wants them to know the harvest can be at any moment. And here's a case in point. Harvest time in the salvation arena is not restricted to a particular time. It can happen at any time. Now, it would have been easy for these disciples 
When they saw the approaching Samaritans, maybe they're dressed in white robes, and so that imagery is used, we don't know. But it would have been easy for them to have had no interest here. But in God's mind, the opposite is true. There's a harvest of souls that is ready, and they need to be ready as Jewish men to claim it no matter who they are. Already, he says, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, John 4.38 indicates that others labored beforehand, that they had prepared the way for this harvest. The reaper must never forget that very often he enjoys the fruit of someone else's toil. And in this case, we don't know who these faithful workers are, but God knows and God will reward them. Very often the one who, quote, unquote, gets the credit is the pastor, the evangelist, and so forth. They get the credit down here, but not that way at the reward seat of Christ. Because God sees those who sow and those who reap. Led someone to Christ this week that... One of our members invited to church, invited her a number of times, and I'm sure they prayed for her. And some of you have sown seed and you've watered it with your own tears and prayers. And, and sometimes I walk into the harvest and I reap it. Sometimes I'll sow and reap on the same day. God knows what he is about. I've sent you, he says, to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you've entered into this labor. Now, again, we're not told specifically who labored before them. I suspect it was John the Baptist, because we just read last week that he's in the area of Samaria, preaching, baptizing. Remember that? And so I'm sure he is the one that's the one who would prepare the way for the Lord who, who's doing this, and the disciples are going to reap the harvest. But here's the point. It's an invaluable lesson. Since seed has been sown in the past, there's a harvest to be sown, to be reaped each and every day. So don't be discouraged. Because, one, you may be involved in the sowing process. And God is working. And you are sowing seed that someone else will reap. And God illustrates that through this. And so we read, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. He honored their request. He broke all the social taboos. He would have visited in their homes, eaten at their tables. They would have slept in their beds. And a revival breaks out. Many more, verse 41, believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Oh, she had a testimony. Come here, one who told me everything she believed. But now they believe because of Christ's own words. And I love this appellation. They conclude, indeed, he is the Savior of the world. Now, a Jew might say, oh, he's the Savior of the Jew but not these Samaritans. They knew that if God could save a despised, mongrel, half-breed people hated by the Jews of that day, the religious establishment, if he could save a dirty, immoral woman at a well, he can save anybody. 
He is the Savior of the world. But is He your Savior? If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 010. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.